From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Military personnel around the world are getting vaccines for the coronavirus tonight. Stars and Stripes reports personnel at bases in Germany and Japan started getting the Moderna shot this week. Reuters reports troops in South Korea were the first people in that country to get a vaccine. The Defense Logistics Agency is the leading user of robotic process automation tools in the entire federal government. New data from the Federal RPA Community of Practice shows DLA has 96 automations that have contributed 200,000 hours of work. According to Defense News, the Community of Practice report says employees who used to do the work the bots do now do more complex work. The Air Force Office of Scientific Research will fast-track 17 grants for quantum information science. The office chose the grant winners from 36 proposals. The office says the 17 winners can apply for grants worth about $75,000 to execute their proposals. The Trump administration's new Defense Department budget plan would eliminate the Overseas Contingency Operations Account. The question, though, that some are asking is why the administration's released a budget plan this close to the end. Mark Kansian, senior advisor of the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Mark, welcome. What do you make of the release of a passback budget with the level of detail that we've seen this close to the beginning or end of an administration? Well, I th think you're seeing two things. You know, one is an expectation by the Trump administration that they were going to have a second term. So they were preparing a budget with that expectation. And of course, they've never really quite given up on that uh, so that they continue to develop a budget even after the election when most administrations would have stopped. Uh, there's also, I think, a political element that is, if they put this on the table, that will act as a benchmark for the Biden administration so that Republicans can measure what Biden is doing and perhaps set up a criticism if the Biden administration makes cuts to the budget. The OCO piece of this is the one that I think is the most interesting, Mark, because people have been talking about getting rid of the OCO for as long as I can remember there being an OCO. Is, have we gotten to a point where that's feasible or possible or even desirable to move that money back into the base account and uh, the base budget and, and start phasing out the idea of the OCO? Well, there's been interest in eliminating OCO or reducing it for some time, as you point out. Uh, you know, originally it was supposed to be for emergency, but of course now it's become a routine part of the budget. The reason it wasn't eliminated before was that there was a perception that you were increasing the defense budget. In other words, if you took money out of OCO and put it in the base, even though total resources and defense didn't change, defense hawks and progressives looked at that as an increase in the defense budget and uh, pushed back. So um, there was no uh, uh, action over the last number of years, although both the Trump administration and the Obama administration projected doing that in the future. Uh, with a change in administrations, there's an opportunity to make that change. I think the Trump administration was going to do that. They were uh, quite willing to uh, maybe take the criticism of uh, an increase in the defense budget, 
either eliminating OCO or moving those parts that are called enduring uh, into the base and leaving some small part um, <clears throat> left for ongoing operations. A Biden administration might do the same thing. I think they might use this as a mechanism, frankly, to cut the defense budget, maybe moving instead of dollar for dollar into the base budget, maybe 50 cents on the dollar. You use the word opportunity, and I have been struck by the number of people referring to opportunity in the transition and also in the response to COVID-19. What other opportunities do you think exist defense budget-wise, either for the mechanisms, the construct of the budget, the way it's, it's put together and delivered, any of that um, for the incoming administration? There's always a lot of interest in you know, making some changes or always people who are you know, unhappy with the current uh, process. I don't think that the major elements of the process uh, will change very much. One thing I think you will see in the Biden administration is a broader definition of national security. I think they will uh, put money towards global health, for example, towards diplomacy, uh, towards uh, climate change, and argue that these are investments in national security also, even though they aren't in the Defense Department, uh, Defense Department. So even though the DOD budget may go down, they'll argue that they're investing broadly in national security. I want to go back to this passback uh, budget that the administration, the Trump administration released. Is there anything there that's useful or that's worth paying attention to? Or is it pretty much dead on arrival and, and exists for those uh, political reasons that you outlined earlier, Mark? Well, it's interesting, of course, in that it will be a benchmark against which uh, the Biden administration will be, be measured. Um, the Navy part, I think, is interesting because it incorporates uh, a lot of changes that have been discussed for the last year. Uh, these include uh, unmanned surface and subsurface vehicles. It includes smaller uh, ships, for example, the, the frigate in a smaller amphibious ship. And I think those will roll over. Uh, maybe not in the numbers that the Trump administration had talked about. You know, Mesper had described this as a 500-plus ship Navy. Uh, you know, that was unaffordable even with the Trump budget and it will be unaffordable in the Biden uh, budget. But I think those elements will uh, roll over. S something to watch for uh, on the Navy side is uh, the carriers. Uh, Esper had talked about up to six light carriers maybe built on a... Uh, the, SS Amer the USS America um, class uh, design. You know, these are the helicopter amphibs. Um, Admiral Gilday, the chief of naval operations, did not include that in his uh, vision. So there's clearly uh, a disagreement inside the Pentagon about uh, the future of the carriers. About 30 seconds left, Mark. Uh, there's a report in Breaking Defense that says one source said Pentagon leaderships advise the services to expect the Biden defense budget in March or April, which is in keeping with previous transitions. What will you look for specifically when that document comes out? Anything beyond what you just laid out? Well, there are going to be two Biden administrations. There'll be an amendment to the FY21 budget, uh, the one we're in now, that will signal where they want to go. They won't be able to make a lot of changes. That will probably come out uh, in March, and then they'll have a full FY22 budget that lays out their, um, you know, major elements of where they're going to go. Of course, their national security strategy, national defense strategy probably won't be out for a year, which will add all the details. But the things to watch for are, you know, what the top line is, if there's a major change in strategy, uh, maybe in the Middle East, pulling out forces. Uh, I'd also watch the Army 
because a lot of people are looking at the Army as a possible bill payer, and I think we'll get a signal about that uh, in both of these budgets. Mark Cancian, thanks very much. Great to have you on again. Thanks for having me on the show. Up next, familiar faces in new places. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the defense landscape on Capitol Hill in 2021. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The National Defense Authorization Act for 2021 is closer to the finish line, but Congress left some defense work in 2020 undone. Kay Amatori is Director of Legislative Policy at the National Defense Industrial Association. Kay, welcome back. What's, what are the loose ends that Congress should tend to? Um, what's done and not done as we start to think about the end of this Congress and the beginning of the next one? Thank you for having me on and a happy new year to you and your staff and crew. It's been a busy December for all of us. We're very happy to have the certainty that has come with having our appropriations bill with the omnibus and uh, many of the authorizations that were provided in the relief bill as well. We have clarification of the tax deductions for the payment protection program, uh, program as well as having you know the shoring up for that. Um, and then we've also gotten Section 3610, which was out of the CARES Act extended, which is really important for companies. You know, it's another tool in their toolbox. It's not something that people are getting rich off of, um, but it provides a safety valve as we still face closures. We're watching for the NDAA, hopefully that once we get those authorizations, which are just critical for our vital resources, for our national defense, for our service members. Um, so we're looking forward to having that in the coming year, we're hoping to get some funding for SBIR increase. We know that um, getting our small businesses through the pandemic is super important, as well as making sure we have that modernization and innovation. So that's going to be a big focus for us, since we do represent so many small businesses, um, as well as just making sure that all of our companies are able to come out the other side of this pandemic healthy. Some of the people who you will be dealing with and, and trying to persuade who will be making those decisions will be different next year. What are the major changes that you see on the landscape uh, on Capitol Hill regarding the people in the in the four committees of jurisdiction? Well, we already know that um, since Representative Thornberry is retiring and we're very grateful to him for all of his decades of service um, from the House Armed Services Committee. So we know that we'll be working with Rep Rogers. Um, that one is going to be in place. He's got great experience coming from um, Homeland Security, being the ranking member over there. So we're, we're looking forward to working with them. Um, other House committees, they haven't done their assignments. They're swearing in on Sunday, but we understand that it, probably next week they'll be making those assignments. On the Senate side, we know that armed services, the leadership's going to remain the same, but there will be some changes. Um, Doug Jones, whoever is going to get uh, his place for a Democrat on the committee for there, um, and then also depending on what happens in Georgia, uh, we'll, we'll be watching that since that could have an impact as well on armed services. Uh, for the appropriations, we know that uh, Minority Whip is going to be um, stepping down from armed services, uh, from appropriations, I'm sorry, and uh, focusing on judiciary. So we're expecting that change. So there there will be some movement, uh, but we know from the leadership standpoint, at least kind of who, who the players will be and continue to work with. You can answer this question specifically regarding Senator Inhofe and Senator Reid or existentially regarding uh, a generic chairman and ranking member. What difference does it make whether a person of one party or a person of the other party is the chair or ranking member of a committee like SASC? You know, 
I think it will have more of an impact overall to the Senate than it will for the particular committee. Both of them are dedicated to supporting our warfighters, uh, making sure that our military has the resources that they need. They, they've both been you know, positive to work with. So I don't foresee that there will be too much of a difference as far as who is in the majority of the minority as far as that aspect of it. We have about 90 seconds left, Kaya. We mentioned COVID a bit in, in the first, in the, some of the legislation that's passed. What are you tracking on Capitol Hill regarding the Defense Department, the Defense Industrial Base, and COVID, and how that might work in 2021? Well, vaccine distribution is a big one. We know that the armed services have started pushing out. Um, we know Marine Corps, they've had their MAR admins come out. The other services have had them. What the vaccine distribution looks like for companies is a little bit harder because it's by state and local laws. And so um, some guidance there would be helpful if it's necessary continuing to support 3610. We know appropriations are still needed there, um, depending on how much it's used in the coming year. Um, and just really making sure that we're able to get through the other side. Cybersecurity is going to be incredibly important. The FY21 NDAA is stronger on cybersecurity than any other legislation. Um, 26 of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission's uh, recommendations are included there. And AI is gonna be really big. We saw that in the NDAA as well. So it, it should be a great, Great coming year for all of us to, you know, hopefully get through this pandemic and have a happy 2021 um, across the board. About 30 seconds left. Anything else that you're paying attention to as we end this year and begin a new one? Uh, well, you know, we're going to have a lot of confirmation hearings coming up. So we're looking forward to working with, you know, new administration, having that smooth transition over. Uh, we're excited. You know, there is a new um, policy position uh, for industrial policy, assistant secretary of defense for industrial policy. So we're looking forward to working with them. Um, you know, it, it's going to be an interesting year for all of us. Uh, planning is a little challenging, not knowing when the pandemic will end, but at least we're able to have a better idea of, you know, what steps we need to take. And that's that's really important because that was kind of what happened last year where the shock of it all, um, but making sure that we do support our industry as we get to the other side. These are highly cleared, highly skilled workers. We wanna make sure that they are in place for us as we come out of this pandemic and that they don't move to the commercial sector because we're gonna need them um, in the years to come. Kaya, thank you very much for coming back on. Great to have you. Thanks for having me. Happy New Year. Coming next, a different look at the future of the fleet. Straight ahead on Government Matters, maybe it's not the number that matters most. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. And you get a preview of every newscast by signing up for our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. Welcome back. The Trump administration's new plan to grow the Navy fleet includes hundreds of unmanned vehicles with a variety of capacities. The new Biden administration can and likely will change that plan, though. Captain Jerry Hendricks, U.S. Navy, retired as vice president of the Telemus Group. He's former director of the Naval History and Heritage Command and author of the new book, To Provide and Maintain a Navy, Why Naval Primacy is America's First Best Strategy. Jerry, welcome. It's good to see you. This new plan that the administration has put out, the Trump administration, what difference does it make with less than three weeks to go? Well, it makes as much difference as, quite frankly, the Obama plan that was put out on December the 16th, 2016, uh, with just 
some uh, five weeks to go in that administration where they enunciated that we needed 355 ships and that plan and that number has become the touchstone of all of our conversations essentially for the last four years. And so I think that the Trump plan uh, that tries to get us uh, to 355 within 10 years and 400 within 20 uh, is, is simply another reference point that uh, highlights the, the idea that we need a larger Navy. And, and that's actually what I have been writing about with this new book is trying to get at the reasons why we need a new Navy uh, to get beyond just the numbers because that, those number arguments haven't been getting a lot of traction. So I wanted to get to policymakers as well as the broader American people uh, as to why a Navy is important to our country. Uh, it gets to the idea of our foundational enlightenment ideas about the free sea and freedom for individuals. Uh, it gets beyond that to understanding how our Navy has maintained oceanic peace for the last 70 years and how that's at risk now as both China and Russia are seeking to close the seas. And so I wanted to get into this conversation and really keep the momentum going as we move into the Biden administration and the policies of the next four years. This is a continuation, though, of the writing and, and speaking and the conversations that you and I have had for a decade or longer, Jerry. Where are you now on what that new Navy should look like? What's the, what's the capacity, I guess, first? And what should it be able to do before we think about what the pieces are that make it able to do that? Well, I mean, the new Navy, uh, as we build forward, and one of the things I say in the book is that if the Navy in 2040 looks like the Navy we have today, then we've essentially failed. Because obviously technology is moving along, the strategic environment is changing, there are things that we're going to need to change. And clearly one of the ideas that's coming along very quickly and as is represented in the Trump plan uh, is the idea of unmanned platforms, using unmanned vehicles to extend the sensor range of our manned ships, uh, as well as perhaps giving additional magazine depth by having uh, unmanned ships carrying additional weapons, missiles, et cetera, along with them in order to deepen the magazine and sustain the force uh, in the fight. Uh, and so obviously we wanna see those changes both in the surface force and in the air uh, element, as well as in the subsurface domain, uh, because quite frankly, the 297 ships today are simply not even close to what we need in order to maintain the peace um, on a day-to-day -day basis, and then as well as have the capacity to win a war uh, if things really go bad with between us and, and China or Russia. There's activity in a theater of operations that you and I have discussed for pretty much the entire time that you and I have been discussing anything, Jerry, and that's the South China Sea. Uh, some fun ops happening there in the last uh, several weeks and uh, also uh, reports that China is starting to extend some of the work. They're, they're back at work, basically, in some of the uh, islands that they have established bases. How does that inform the way that you're thinking about what the new Navy looks like and how should that inform the way the Biden administration starts to think about where the Navy is and what the Navy does? It's important to understand that the deployment of Navy ships and the types of ships that we send to key regions uh, represents a form of language between nations. Uh, I'm telling you one thing when I send a carrier strike group, I'm telling you something differently when I send perhaps a, a, a surface action group that's around an, a cruiser and it's something different than if I'm sending a frigate through. Um, all of these things are sort of different levels of a conversation. 
we are in a heavy argument with the Chinese right now in the South China Sea because they are trying to extend a territorial claim over those waters. They're trying to claim that essentially the South China Sea is internal waters to China. And that's simply not acceptable uh, if we are going to uphold the concept of the free sea. I might add, by the way, that Russia is doing the same thing in the Arctic, where they're trying to reorder their baselines based upon some offshore islands, as well as putting some missiles and armaments out there in order to extend a sovereign claim over the Arctic Ocean. And that's something that we in the West, if we want to maintain free sea, free trade, and the transmittal of free ideas, we cannot allow that to happen. Um, I would say that it's kind of interesting because we've been doing these FONOPs in the South China Sea. That's a very important conversation. But I would also uh, highlight the fact that we sent an Ohio-class uh, guided missile submarine on the surface into the Arabian Gulf last week, escorted by two Ticonderoga-class cruisers in a very clear conversation that we were having with Iran that now is not the time as we sort of approach uh, the anniversary of the death of Soleimani. Uh, now is not the time for them to jump ugly with the United States. We have just a minute or so left, Jerry. You were the first person to explain to me the concept of the high-low mix. Where is that concept right now? Well, it's beginning to mature, specifically now that we have the Constellation-class frigate selected and we're beginning to build that. Uh, we're looking to build no less than 20 of those, but in actuality, we need around 60, a number I call for in my new book. Uh, but also with the idea of creating these new unmanned surface platforms to extend the range of ships like the Constellation Frigate uh, and make sure that we're covering a greater presence in the ocean. These ships at the low end of the mix, these ships are there to do the maintain the, the peace aspect of the, naval's, the Navy's mission while we continue to focus on building our aircraft carriers and our submarines to do the win the war portion of the Navy's role in the world. Jerry, thanks very much for joining me. Congratulations on the book. Thank you, and it's good to see you again. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available now as an audio podcast. You get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.